Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. This is episode 99. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis sitting in the captain's chair. Wow, 99 episodes under the Actually, belt. today you're sitting in the general's chair. Yes, I am. Thank you. Five stars to, no, excuse me, four stars. Uh, George S. Patton Jr. It's a hero's episode. Yep, a lot of people think of Patton as a hero. Some would think of him as a villain, actually. Uh, he uh, He's a controversial figure even today, uh, these many, many years after his death and uh, and his triumph uh, in many respects. He, he was one of the major figures in winning the war in uh, Europe. Uh, and he was not without his detractors or his uh, praisers all throughout. No question, though, the man was a leader. And he was a visionary. He knew very clearly what he wanted to do and knew exactly what it would take to do it. We're going to talk about him, his accomplishments, the man, the legend, the myth, all of the above today. Guys? Thoughts? Well, I guess we need to get this out of the way, too. There are some sources, mm-hmm. and we're not just totally informed here by the movie. As awesome as the movie is... <coughs> it's not generally inaccurate. There's some compressions and stuff done. Actually, there are two. Because there was the follow-on that showed his death. Which yes. was also actually very, very accurate. Yeah. Uh, they were, and George C. Scott played the character in both. Yes. Uh, the movies, as, I, as you know, people are going to come in through that door. Yeah. We kind of understand that. And it's not a bad door. It's no. not. We do not no. want to simply say that this is completely fiction. Uh, the book that it was based on, several books it was based on, one was O.R. Bradley's uh, memoirs. And Bradley consulted on the film. It, it, exactly. So, I so mean, it, it, they made sure to make he, him he look was really still, good. He was still alive. Carl Malden played him. And uh, <clears throat> he a lot of the stuff that went on, and also... Um, Bradley's um, assistant, Chet Hansen, who appears in the movie briefly, he wrote a rather detailed book about all this uh, that was that was based that was part of the based. Uh, the actual narrative, though, was based on a book called *Pat Ordeal and Triumph* by the great journalist Ladislas Farago, uh, who had written. I'm glad books. he had to say that. Well, well I mean, I've got the book. It's Farago. actually yeah, it's back here behind me uh, on my shelf. Actually, paperback. I bought it years ago. It's a great read. The man knows how to write, and he got Patton. He understood, and that's that's kind of one of the things you wish for in a biographer that truly understands. Now, the fact is that this was World War II. The documentation is bloody everywhere. I mean, we've got all the details of who went where and did what. Yep, that's all well well known, well documented, and there were plenty of witnesses when the book was written and the movie yeah. was made. Still, because I I, I feel there. like that you know you're saying that he got. Patton. Mm-hmm. Even with the film, Patton can be hard to reach. He is, very much so. He's, he's complex. He he is contradictory at times. <clears throat> he is, he is, and he calls himself a prima donna. And he admits it. And damn, he, he ain't wrong. Absolutely. Uh, and yet he's also the man that will go into a, a battlefield from a thousand years ago, kneel down in prayer, and almost cry for the loss of life that took place there. That uh, that movie is, moment is captured in the movie. It's based on Bradley's memoirs. He was there with him. In which battlefield was that? Uh, it, well, it was, an, it was on the way to the Battle of Kasserine Pass. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, and in real life, Patton, for some strange reason, has the driver veer off the road, and he goes to some other, which he presumes is a battlefield. It was thousands of years ago, and he was, the battle was here. 
the Carthaginians versus the Roman legions, and he goes yes, through all yes, that I stuff like that. And that's uh, is it fantasy? Well, I mean, Patton really didn't have that moment. Uh, but it kinda, how it's expressed in the movie may be somewhat fantasy. Uh, it's, actually, it's pretty accurate because, like I say, Bradley was there. No, but, but it might be Patton's fantasy. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's oh, yeah. That's what I want to be. That's what I'm be clear of. It probably was. Patton had no reason to think that. He's just one of those gut moments that he had. Uh, Patton was a compo. His uh, his favorite author was Rudyard Kipling of all things, mm-hmm. uh, who is a complex character in and of himself. Especially, uh, I submit that his love of Kipling was the pre-war Kipling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't say that for sure, but uh, Kipling was very much a hawk until the death of his son. We've talked about yeah. that before, actually, in one of our early episodes. Uh, but um, so much of what happened. Um, with him is so well known, and yet he eludes us still. I think that one of the interesting things about Patton uh, is to go back to the beginning. So he was an officer at the time of World War One, mm-hmm. and he is of a generation with uh, Eisenhower mm-hmm. and uh, MacArthur. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, they are relative contemporaries, not the same class at West Point, but they are. Well, Relative contemporaries. Eisenhower a, and Patton were there together. I don't remember if they're the same class. But right, they that's what I'm the, saying. They I were at the same yeah. time. Yeah, they are. Uh, I think if I remember right, MacArthur's a little older. He is. If I remember right, you're right. About ten years older. Marshall is just a year or two older. Mm-hmm. I think. So yes, yeah, so that that group is very much. You know, it's in a way senior command. In a way, it's a lot like the the senior commanders in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. They were in the academy together, and they served in the Spanish American War together. Mm-hmm. Mexican American War. I'm sorry. Yes, Mexican American. Yeah. Yes, sorry, yeah. sorry. Uh, close, but not quite the same. Not quite the same. Uh, yeah. But yeah, they served in Mexico together, and then they became leaders of the next war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's an interesting parallel. Now, granted, these guys are all on the same side, so that that that's where the parallel fails. Right. But not all of them actually got to go to war in World War One. Some of them That's missed right. out on it for various reasons. Because right. really, the U.S. wasn't there that long. I mean, it was less yes, than a year. You're exactly right. Yeah, Patton was artillery captain. Right. When he was there, uh, I think Eisenhower missed out on the European War in World War One. Um, and yet, uh, uh, MacArthur had a had a fairly significant command. Both, during, but he was also older, so that he that was makes more exactly. Sense. And even after the war, because you know, the, after the war. The United States Armed Forces shrank to almost nothing. MacArthur yes. was the only one who really retained a significant high-level command during that time. Patton and Eisenhower, I won't say they're sidelined because they stayed in the Army, but they never rose to the levels in the peacetime that MacArthur did. And it was, I don't know if that's luck, I don't know if that's political pull. Or... No, I think that's the nature of all three men. That's right. MacArthur has a reputation as a political general. You're right. That's that's exactly that's it. going to get him farther ahead. Plus, being older, he's going to be a little bit higher in rank, anyways, most right. likely. Uh-huh. Especially having battlefield experience, so he's that's yeah. going to help push him along. I mean, yes, they were they were both still essentially captains, right? Uh, and, exactly. And being that low level and being not the administrative kind of officer, that's not where their talents are. Uh, not that they can't do them, but, right. you know. I mean, obviously, you, th- you think of Patton, you do not think of a paper pusher. I mean, and you don't think of Eisenhower in the same way. But Eisenhower, he got to do a little of both. He did. He got to have kind of some commands and some staff jobs. He got to see a little everything from every side. 
It really what made him effective. He could see things from from every angle. Right. And that's not that's not Patton's experience. Uh, he, he, you're right. They do do some of that. Patton's a combat officer, uh, and that's really all he ever wanted to be. He says that you know in in what was what he, all the time in has it been reported to us after the fact. When I think of Patton, actually what I think, one of the quotes I think of is not actually a Patton quote, but I think it applies to him. And that's the quote you hear out of the mouth of Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. Especially, I, I presume this is a real quote because it sounds like him. Uh, and that is, uh, uh, it is good that his war is so terrible, otherwise we would love it so, so much. much. Love that's, it. That's, that's, that describes Patton well. Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, uh, because that's when he, it seems like, that's well, when he was most alive. There's a, there's a moment in the movie, he says, God help me, I love it so. Yes, and exactly. That's kind of the thing. Now, that, I don't know how accurate that quote yeah, is either. But it's Hollywood. the same kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, they are good at it. Uh, you know, especially when it comes to the tactics. Mm-hmm. And, and the training, too, and the personnel, yeah. and all the details yeah. that go into that. Yeah, to peel back that mythos a bit... He and Eisenhower both, but Patton in particular, were really good at understanding how warfare was changing. Patton's an early advocate for motor transport. Mm -hmm. He's an early advocate for armor. Uh, A very, even before his World War I experiences, he's an officer with Pershing in Mexico. That's right. And uses automobiles effectively to go after... This is before anybody was even thinking like that. Right. right he was after uh, Pancho Villa. Pancho Villa. The bandits in Mexico well, yeah, and Pancho Villa. The, <laughs> the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, their very first episode, has that moment. They actually show it, and you don't know who it is until the end. And so, yeah, we, I think Lieutenant Patton is going to be somebody. Of course, you know, the, the audience gets... Oh, but it was a real event. I mean, they just yeah. they, they inserted yeah. it in there. He they, did do they, that. They were in a, in a vehicle. They chased down... Three of Via's bandits, I think it was, hopped out of the car and got into a gunfight. And he straps them on the damn hood of the damn thing and brings them back. Yeah, it's uh, it was he was not he was definitely not a conceptual soldier. He was an action soldier. Now he knew the concepts. He, knew he doesn't them. say he, but could, he's, he's instrumental he in building them. And he's this, visionary. This interwar period. Uh, he's instrumental in in the development of tank warfare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, mobility. Yeah, uh, under great. Opposition, at times, uh, and there's a scene in the second movie, the the TV movie, uh, which has flashbacks where he's actually presenting mechanized warfare uh, to a bunch of high-ranking army uh, command command, basically those who hold the purse strings, and he ends up saying this is so simple a child could do it. He it's his wife who was there at the time says, "Darling, would you mind driving this thing?" And she does in front of all these guys. Uh, to kind of make the impression, you know, this is so simple, we absolutely should be doing this. It's just one of those little, little moments was, that get included. It's one of the ways he was a visionary. Because as, as Martin, you just said, he could see how things were changing and saw the need to change tactics. Because again, most generals, especially those at the staff level, they fight the last war. They come prepare, come to the next war prepared to fight the last war. Yes. And there's a value in lessons learned. But understanding, okay, but those lessons applied to the last thing right. we did. Right. What do you, how are you going to take that in new ways yeah. uh, to the next war? Because the guys you're going to fight, they learn the same lessons, and they're going to try and come up with you know new ways too. So, And I think what got him into trouble, uh, and this is partially the, the kind of trouble that geniuses get into, 
And that is that they get so frustrated when other people can't see what is so blindingly mm-hmm. obvious to them. Yes, yes. That, that, that describes and that's where he gets into trouble. very, very well. That's correct. And uh, uh, in his younger days, uh, he was able to coerce, not coerce, but convince pretty easily. But as he got older... He got more set in his ways, and that he was... Well, when you're a general, you expect people to, to come to your way of thinking. With an ego that he had, and there's yes. nobody doubts that he had one. Now, that's not to say, though, that he couldn't be sneaky and sly. We talked about oh, yeah. this yesterday during our, our road trip, uh, and the uh, little bit of road or show prep we did uh, then, talking about how he was already planning and disengaging from the front he was fighting. Yeah. To come to the aid of uh, the 101st, even though they did not need rescuing, which they were very, uh, as we talk about, uh, <laughs> yes, they're the, the, very the, sensitive about that. Yeah. But he disengaged an enemy at his front that he was fully engaged with and managed to do it in a way. It was not a retreat. It was not a rout, which is very difficult to do, mm-hmm. and hit the Germans in the flank during the Battle of the Bulge. Mm-hmm. And he did it successfully. He did it in three days. Sure. And part far- of that is he was, le- he was planning for that ahead of time. Right. And so he was convincing, you know, they were talking about what to do. It's like, well, I can do this in three days. It's kind of like that name that tune. I can save your ass in three notes. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, that's, that is to me, after, in researching all this, that's, that's the quintessential Patton moment. Because he yes, combines... That's his greatest triumph. His, his preparation with his doctrine with his leadership. Because, and his audacity. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he... he he knew what his men could do, and they knew he believed in them. So, and again, this this episode to to round it all out again: the Battle of the Bulge. The Germans have taken this last ditch drive towards Antwerp. They went through a weak sector, and they've completely surrounded the 101st Airborne Division in a Belgian town of Bastogne. And again, Patton he prepping his staff and says, be ready, I'm going to a meeting with Eisenhower, here's what we're going to do, start drawing it up and have it ready. He gets to the meeting with Eisenhower and says, well, I can I can hit with three divisions. In 48 hours. In 48 hours, and they're like, well, George, you might want to give yourself a little... A little leeway yeah. on that, yeah. and that—that's that, in moments in the movie. That's correct. Yeah. And but and it happens very nearly that way yeah, in because, real life. Yeah, because Bradley was. And he they they were like, "Okay, well, go ahead, George." So he walks. He leaves the meeting. Gets on the phone. Calls his command. Sends them the code. Play ball. And they know we're we're moving. And he does. And he moves north. Hits the Germans on the flank. Relieves the pressure off. Best. There's time. a great moment in the movie when he describes that to the audience, but. To, kind of to himself too. He says, "No other outfit in the world could do what we've done. Uh, to turn turn around, uh, march the other way with no rest, no sleep, no hot food. Uh, God, I'm proud of these men. Yeah. That's kind of the moment that explains he, he, it. Yeah, and he, for all of his ego, he gave them a lot of credit. That's right. See, now I think this is the epitome of leadership. And yes. This, this episode in this in his life, because. On so many different levels. First of all, he's thinking 10 steps ahead of everybody else. Mm-hmm. He sees, even though he's fully engaged with an enemy to his front, he's aware of what's going on elsewhere. And he sees how he can help. Mm-hmm. So he goes off to this meeting. He tells his staff, get ready. And it's basically all, he doesn't say, all right, this is the general uh, order of how we're going to do this, work out the details. 
he leaves all of that to them. He trusts his staff yep. implicitly. He's worked with them long enough. And he knows. he knows that they will do what is required. And he goes to the meeting with his superiors, one of which used to be his subordinate. <laughs> that's correct. You know, that's a, a humbling thing for a man of him, uh, of his his nature in general. But he was never resentful from any everything I've seen yeah. they, about they remain, Bradley becoming his superior. They remain close friends. Yeah. Uh, and... I would say Patton ever because Patton was considered for that command. Yes, uh, and he, when it didn't come, and of course the movie shows the moment very well when Bradley gets it, he's just like, "Well, sure, you know, this is just as bad as it gets." Uh, and uh, he just says, "I just can't believe they're going to leave me out of this." Right. It's not so much I can't believe they gave it to him. Yes, it's, which in a way is a lot of his ego talking. That's right. But when he goes to this meeting and he presents it. You know, like I said, he's already ten steps ahead of his superiors. Probably the only two guys that outrank him in the European theater. I mean, there might be somebody else, but not many. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he's he's in charge of an army, right? Uh, he's got many peers, but ultimately, he's got Bradley ahead of him and Eisenhower over him, right? So, so I mean, yeah. these are the. I mean, these are the top three guys essentially. Yeah. In the European theater, and he's already ten steps ahead of both of them, mm-hmm. and they don't think he can quite do it, but they're also willing. To roll the dice with him. Well, they know him. Because they know him. They know he's yeah. delivered before. And so it's not only does he understand and know what his staff is capable of, but as you said, he trusts his men. Mm-hmm. And that's the other part of leadership. It's not just that he trusts his subordinates. He trusts the guys in the field. Right. You know, the guys are belly to belly, nose to nose, you know, bayonet to bayonet with the Germans. Yeah. And... That is one of the most overlooked elements of leadership. And that is not just training the people underneath you, but getting them to expect the most out of themselves. Yep. Because he was that's, very good at that. That was the hardest thing. And I think that is the, that to me, that is the essence of true leadership. It's not pushing your vision forward, it's getting the most, not only getting the most out of the people underneath you that you're leading, but getting them to expect the same or higher. And, you know, I've talked a lot about, uh, you know, fictional examples of leadership, uh, Honor Harrington. Uh, and it's a, it's a similar, and, and there, you know, it's great because when you write leadership, you can, be, you can be a lot more obvious about it. Right. You know, you play it up a little bit more. But it's the same kind of leadership. People don't want, the, the greatest leaders are those whose followers don't want to disappoint them. You know, mm-hmm. the greatest leaders are those who say, this is the standard and then turns and goes, expecting everybody to follow them, and they do. Mm-hmm. Because those are the kind of leaders that you want to follow. right? And if you can produce that, you are a genius-level leadership. Now, there's functional leader. He's a functional leader because he's a general. But he's a true leader because of what he gets out of his people. And that's expecting the best out of them, and then they produce it. Because they don't want to disappoint the old man. That's right. Old blood and guts. Which he hated, by the way. He did not like that nickname. Well, he was he was a lot more sensitive. I mean, he was a, in a way, you know, he, he had a very poetic soul in many ways. Yes, as mm-hmm. very much so. Uh, and that's unusual too. He was a well-rounded. Man. He had a classical education. <laughs> yes, he yeah, did. we talked about it. Yeah, we can. Yeah, and he, talk it, industrialization and, and men's fashion all day. Right. Uh, a voracious reader too. I mean, he yes. knew, he knew uh, all this sort of stuff, and that's and that comes. He got that honestly from his very earliest days. Uh, he also had that military background in his family. Uh, he had uh, 
his father uh, uh, and uh, uncles were all military. They did military service as well. Uh, Confederate sat, actually. Uh, so there was some... Uh, sure, that would be his grandfather. It was grandfather. I meant to say grandfather. Yes, exactly. Uh, but there, there was a, there was other pieces there in in that in that family, uh, and he uh, he says it in the movie so well. All I ever wanted was to lead an army in a, in a, in combat, and yeah, he does. Uh, he in has, a way that sounds like you know the seven year old kid. And but I think it should a little bit because maybe I mean it sounds childish and it sounds immature, but. Because hopefully nobody should ever have to do that. Right. Yeah. Well, but the knows, reality is somebody's going to have well, to. Well, he knows that's what he's good at. And he, he, but, and you he, know, I think he could have applied that in other areas. I'm, but, again, I'm not denigrating that desire. Sure. And part but, of that was his background, his military background. Right. And the recognition there is always going to be an, uh, it's gonna uh, go some, there. somebody to fight. It's a sad truth. Yeah, he wants to... He, uh, he, Patton himself made a comment... Uh, it was during World War One. He was wounded briefly, shot in the butt, actually. Uh, and during that time, he uh, on the fields of battle in World War One, he he said he looked up and he saw the faces of his ancestors watching him, as you know, as he's there wounded, saying, you know, they're urging him on to do do right by us, do what that what you're supposed to do, you know, like in the Lion King, be who you are. That sort of who thing. are you? Who are you? That's right. <laughs> it's, 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 it's the very same thing. That's kind of that which he instilled in those men that you talked about. They don't want to disappoint the old man. That was his motivation as well. He didn't want to disappoint those who went before him. Right. That were well, you know, well that's the other thing. As he, as A good believed. leader uh, is not is not about what they want. A good leader should always be about um, what is good and right and true to begin with, mm. but. Uh, should be at service to a larger ideal. Oh, Patton was definitely that. And that's, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, because the ideal is what ultimately inspires everyone else. Because otherwise it's a cult of personality, and that can go south very quickly. Yeah, well, he, yeah, he didn't like that yeah. when he saw that other places. He accused Montgomery. Yeah, like Monty. He accused Montgomery yeah. of that, and, and, which I mean, is not fair. Right, uh, but... But although Montgomery did have some of that, I mean, of course, you know. Well, they, so did Pat. I mean, well, that's correct. Yeah. But Montgomery, living so long after the war, uh, had a little bit of you know. We get to see that afterwards. For the rest of his life, Montgomery would sign his name Montgomery of Alamein. That's how he. That's you know, not not Sir Bernard Law or any stuff. Just Montgomery of Alamein. I mean, there's ego for you folks. But then again, is it arrogance if you can really do it? Well, and, that's he the did. thing. Guys like Patton, Montgomery, Eisenhower, Bradley, the giants of that level are all going to be a little bit eccentric. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, with Patton, maybe it was a little bit more yeah. than a little bit. I mean, you know, there's the pearl-handled revolvers. Mm -hmm. um, ivory. They're ivory. ivory. Sorry. Only, ivory. Uh, right. only a pimp in a New Orleans whorehouse would carry a yeah, pearl-handled yeah, revolver. I'm well, I'm glad you did because I was wanting one of us <laughs> to pull that quote out from the movie. Because yes. it's, it's one of those moments. And by the way, we ourselves, where we live in Louisville, Kentucky, the Patton Museum of Armor is just about 45 minutes south for us at Fort Knox. And... It's Pat an awesome place. It really is, and Patton's pistols mm -hmm. are there, yes. along with along with the actual uh, limousine where he was 
uh, injured, ultimately mm-hmm. mortally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on display there, as well as his uniforms. Well, plus his command uh, wagon, whatever you would call oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, command car. Command car. It's no, it's a, not a car. I mean, it's like, literally, it's like his roving office. Uh, uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. His field yes. office. Field office. That's, yes. yeah, Trailer, that's yeah. That, yeah, yeah. That's all there. Uh, many of his personal uh, effects and aspects are all there. So we, we got the advantage of being able to, you know, almost up and close and touch the man. Uh, after the fact, and it doesn't shy away from his uh, eccentricities uh, that that you. When see. you're good, the ex- they're eccentricities. That's right. When you're bad, they're excesses. That's well. I mean, and it, he came very close to that, as you all know, and the movie shows it very well. But it was a very real incident where he slaps the soldier. Uh, there were plenty of witnesses, and that thing was documented because he was almost court-martialed. It was only his. Uh, for for political reasons, that was you know there were reporters there were there were reporters present. Uh, they almost pulled him. The Germans couldn't believe it because they didn't think politics worked that way in America. They did, but it was only his friendship with Eisenhower. Well, and Eisenhower knew he would need him eventually. That's exactly right. Now, although Eisenhower I can't, believed in him strongly, I can't lose this man. He fights. Well, I'm glad you said because yeah. I was about to go there. That's exactly right. I mean, it was it was Grant was not you know pulled out because Lincoln saw. The need for that man. Same with Patton and Eisenhower. They were friends. Uh, it's They're rivals. It's, well, yeah, it's even money how that ended because Eisenhower had to relieve Patton after the war. He was military governor of Bavaria, and the second movie shows a lot of this happening. Yes, about how he basically uh, he wouldn't denazify. Uh, as that was the big thing. Right. He says, you know, you will do this. And, he and it drives. shows also his his vision of how things are, and how he was not a political general because he he was right in a lot of ways. Is I cannot totally denazify because I don't have anybody to run anything. That's yeah, and you couldn't do it. You couldn't hold any kind of a, an official post without being a Nazi. Yeah. So if he wanted to keep people fed, keep people warm, you know, have enough fuel to keep the the water uh, plant moving and keep right. keep clean water going to the. Right, yeah. Buildings. Which he couldn't get rid of everybody. That's yeah. and that's you know, that's him being in the tactics. Eisenhower's strategy only he says sorry, you, you got to Well his other thing was he was drilling the uh the German soldiers that yeah. were it, uh, it, it, uh, in the, in the, the POW camps the POW camps because he wanted to, to rearm them and turn around and fight the Soviet Union. That's ultimately what did him in because the pol- the political powers back home says this guy's a loose cannon you got to get him out of here. Now, there was a time when we all sat around once and said he was right. Well, it turns out we were wrong about that because we ended up not having to actually fight them. Right. But it was a better than even money bet that at some point at the time well, with that the, we would have been back in Europe actually with fighting. With the specter of nuclear holocaust above us on that. Which was that not a, there. You know, He didn't know anything about that yet. Right. Matter yeah. of fact, he died before the first bomb fell. Did no, he no, it no, was after. Yeah, it was yeah, after. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was in December of forty-five. That's he right. Actually, yes. died. So no, he knew about VJ Day and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there's a moment in the in the movie when he's riding a horse, talking about wonder weapons and all that stuff. It's kind of a little bit of a conceit. Uh, it was putting in something that was maybe not really there, or if it was, it was a throwaway at the time that made it pretty palatable for 1970 when the movie was made. But also I could see that being something he would say because that takes all of the, for lack of a better word, honor out of that. That's what he says. You know, uh, I'm, I'm glad I'll never live to see it. it. Nothing is glorified. Nothing is reaffirmed. Uh, well, what's what's the wonder in that? Yeah. 
Well, you know, as I research this, and, and uh, I want to talk about some of these, you know, particular things, some of the stuff that he, he, and one of these guys that's heavily involved in understanding how to use tanks, <coughs> how to use combined arms, how to use air power, mm-hmm. even though he's not a pilot and doesn't really know anything about air aircraft and air he understood what he could do with them. Because it was very much, he understood close air support, and he knew that if he could bring close air support in, armor and artillery in, that gave him a ton of striking power then to to follow up with infantry. Well, he was also a student of war, amazingly. He knew uh, instinctively things like uh, at Waterloo, uh, Marshal Ney's charge, that was not with by cavalry, with that was not supported by infantry or artillery and all that stuff. And he, and he saw those lessons of history. Yeah. So he's not going to make those same mistakes. Yeah. So as I researched all of that, the guy that kept coming up in my head is Sherman. Mm-hmm. When you think about the same type of this eccentric, irrational, sometimes emotional, hated politicians. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but also understanding there is a new way of war. Oh, yeah. They were both uh, well ahead of their time. In you know, Sherman understanding that it's not enough. You know, you get in all the battles with Lee you want. But if I can starve Lee, if I can deny him resources, I'm making Grant's job easier. Right. Sherman is understanding there's a whole new paradigm to warfare. It's coordination between front, between yeah. theaters. Well, and, and, and then Patton is then understanding, too, there's a whole new way of warfare here. What I think with Sherman, I think what you're also seeing is, whether he realizes this or not, I think it's a response to, it's a different kind of war. Civil war the American Civil War is unique in history to that point for this very reason. Uh, it is the most ideological war. Because as we've talked about, it's about slavery. Mm -hmm. It's about what it means to be the United States. Whereas most civil wars are strictly power grabs. Mm -hmm. Most wars in general are power grabs. Mm -hmm. Us versus them. Right. And there is that aspect to to World War II as well. Because that's the whole point of of Hitler. But it also became, uh, in many ways, an ideological war. And so, you know, just as the Civil War, you know, he, Sherman is responding to that, uh, you know, because he knows you have to defeat the people who are supporting those at the front mm-hmm. uh, to be able to truly win. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just the army that has to be defeated. And I think for, for Patton, you know, not necessarily he's looking to defeat the ideology, but in the same sense, he's, learned, he, he's fighting war differently. He sees what's going on around him differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, than than Sherman, uh, than others did, just like Sherman did. Uh, you know, he's he's able to see more, and being able to what he's all about is using all the weapons he can to do the job as efficiently and, a, and, yeah. and as quickly as possible. And that's that. In a way, he's a Renaissance man when it comes to warfare. Uh, there is no such thing as a tool that does not go into his toolbox. Mm-hmm. And, and the proof is in the pudding in the end. Right. Now, Baston is just the most dramatic of it. It's one of many. Right. The Equipping or wanting to arm and, and train the German soldiers. Mm-hmm. That's doesn't matter where the tool comes from. If it works, I want to use it. Because he thinks he has another war to fight. <laughs> there is another war to fight. It just didn't get fought the way he thought it would. Right. Yeah. Uh, again, that's him thinking ahead. 
um, disengaging and, and and attacking at the Battle of the Bulge. You know, that's another thing. He is he, he's just he's just probably the master of the trade because mm-hmm. he he really he, it's not just one thing. He's not a one tool general. The Germans feared him more than anybody else. Well, yes. and that's and that's the that's that's part of the reason why. And he was not able to be told this, of course, that uh, Eisenhower knew he had to be the bait, uh, you know, the misdirection. That's why he was kept in England, supposedly as the leader of the invasion. Uh, he's Never not come at Calais. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he's not told any of this. And in in many respects, that's kind of unfair to him. But it's also I he necessary. Knew he was being the bait. No, no, he was. He did not know it until until, Third, that. until Third Army was activated. Uh, that's when once the once D Day happened, then they went ahead and brought him in. And uh, I don't know. No, he dies. He thought he was really out. I yeah, mean, he, he really he did. Basically he thought he, that he was going to be sidelined for the whole thing. Right, because he could have been. Um, he didn't realize. Nah, they could never have done that. Right. Well, well, not, not at that point. He, Eisenhower really, really went to bat for him. He really did, because there are those that there were powerful forces that said, "No, we want him gone because we can't control him. We don't think that he can be trusted." The slapping incident was just one of those. Yeah, it was unfair. Uh, yeah, he made a hell of a mistake, and uh, he was. Uh, he said again, I keep quoting the movie because it keeps coming back. He says, "You know, in the movie, which is a quote of his actually, if you read the book, um, how can something so trivial in its application be so terrible in its consequences?" The slaps, what he's talking about, because that's when it, that's when Bradley got the got the moment. He's basically Eighth Army is taken away from him, given to Mark Clark, and he's sidelined uh, uh, for really the uh, the rest of forty three and almost the first half of forty four. So it's almost a year. It's yeah. Well, um, it it's August. Yeah. It's August uh, before he's brought in theater. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's and I it's forget, two months after Normandy. Right. So I figure I mean, it's about a year. I, I don't remember when the slap occurred. I mean, it was in it was in Italy, yeah, uh, Sicily, yeah, Sicily, Sicily, yeah. Uh, when when the when the Eighth Army was his, yeah. the, his commander. Well, and the sad thing is, if there hadn't been press around, wouldn't have been a thing. <sighs> I'm not sure it could have been contained. It was pretty dramatic. Cause, I mean, it's in a freaking hospital. In yeah, front of all but these witnesses. but you're right. It would the, not have had the sting that it yeah. had. Yeah, I don't it, think he would have been sidelined like that. It wouldn't have gotten back to Washington quite as fast. That's for sure. The well, doctors might still have. They might have emailed. Or, you know. <laughs> uh, careful with the anachronisms there, brother. <laughs> yeah. One of the doctors still might have mailed yeah, Eisenhower and complained yeah, or something I, I, like that. I, it was, but the reporters guaranteed it got back to Washington really fast. Well, not just to Washington, but you know that there's also well, the, the American threat people. of that would be that would be reported to the American people. Yeah. Well, they even show a, uh, in the movie they show a copy of an actual cartoon, political cartoon. Uh, that Patton gets enraged by because it shows him kicking the little soldier with a swastika on his boot, and of course he goes nuts. You know, my iron, my foot, an iron boot with a swastika on it. You know, well, yeah, that's uh, you know, welcome to the world of politics, sir. Well, let's take a quick break. Patton would love bourbon. I know he was a hard drinker at times. He preferred cognac, <laughs> but I'm sure that he that uh, bourbon, whiskey, and such things were. Uh, very much of his he element. Would, he would do whatever he felt like the troops would want to see him do. Oh, there's a lot of that. Uh, yes. Because he, he did see himself not just as that efficient leader, but also as a symbol. He thought it was important yeah, he, to be a symbol. He got To that. be what the troops expected him to be. When you reach the level he's at, you recognize there is a certain amount of theater that you have to show. Uh, which worked against him, of course, because he's made to apologize for the slap. 
at every unit one by one and they show one of them in the movie and I mean, you can just see George C. Scott uh, pulling it off walking I and mean, he, he prays the 22nd Psalm in a church in full dress uniform before he walks out in front and he gives you know the same script it's well written he had to write it himself and it's well done but you can just see the anguish and agony that he is as he's made to eat crow and yeah a big steaming hot mug of it uh, it's not good, uh, but yet it was. That's that's the or and that's 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 Farago, the author, yeah. ordeal and triumph. That's the subtitle of the book. He, you have and that's what makes it such a great story. You have to go to the deepest, darkest depths of the moment is lost for a good story before triumph can happen. Yes, and that's that's this his story plays to that format very very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, bourbon, gentlemen, we're talking about bourbon here. Bourbon break. Bourbon break. Deep bourbon break. Evan Williams. What you, yeah, I was gonna say, what you drinking? You still drinking Evan Williams? Uh, yours is on the rocks. No, this glass is neat. Oh, oh, oh good. Last good, time good. around, I had some ice, but this time I around, I went neat yeah. for our, our session here at uh, uh, Studio F. Studio so F. For the Why am I vapor locking like this? I, I don't know. I, you still, you know, tired from yesterday? No, no, I'm all right. I'm just. Uh, not usually at that. Vapor lock brings some unfortunate digestive imagery to my mind. I don't think we want to go there. No. Surely not. But I'm, I'm having some, uh, uh, the electrical uh, conductivity in my uh, motor neurons isn't uh, connected to my mouth too well this episode. I can tell because you couldn't even get that out. <laughs> I couldn't even get that out. That's not like you, Martin. It really isn't. You're usually, you know, that rapier-like wit usually comes right Scathing, out. yes. Scathing. Scathing is a good, very word. Uh, Robert, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm still uh, finishing my uh, my glass of Woodford yeah. Double Oak. Yes, of course, of course. Yes. Uh, go-to bourbon. Still is the best. I mean, still, you know, if it's, it's right up there. If you can't have Pappy Van Winkle, this is a worthy substitute. Yeah. I'm still I'm still working on Basil Hayden's Dark Rye. Uh, I, I like that, uh, that, uh, that powerful depth. You know, it's 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 got it's just got it's like it's good stuff, but more of it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I like. Because I do feel like we need to expand our bourbon selection some more, uh, which is difficult because you know we we don't do this we don't. often enough to go through the bottles that we drink, and none and, of us drink it otherwise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To I mean, speak of, yeah. Other than this, uh, prior to my you know my last pastor, which as you guys know, I'm very good friends with. I did most of my drinking at the rectory. Yeah. Uh, which is, I, I well, he's a bourbon collector. Because he is, a, oh yes, and he has a very fine a vast, selection. Vast, vast selection. Very That's fine right. selection. The last time I was over there, he gave me some Pappy to drink with him. You uh, lucky, lucky boss. Well, that's right, because I had I had had it with him once before, but it'd been a while since I'd seen him, so he uh, he broke it out with me again. So that must have been the new bottle he got, because he does was, not usually break it out for people. Twice. No, he he had gotten he had gotten a new bottle. Well, somebody had gifted it to him. He must think the sun, sun shines right at your eyes. Uh, hey, what can yes, I say? because like I said, it's rare somebody gets it twice. Yeah, yeah I, was, Although, I was grateful. The retired deacon at my parish. Uh, one of our deacon nights, we were uh, we're doing. You know, Father always said, you know, go get whatever bourbon you want. And uh, uh, deacon deacon M, yeah, uh, was he was wanting to say, well, I'll just grab a couple of fingers of bourbon, and he would get his his pappies. Now, you know, I have slender fingers. You know, I do not have thick, meaty hands. I have a uh, artist's hands. Mike on the 
No, yeah, let it out. Uh, yeah. Mike, on the other hand, uh, has uh, meaty hands. Uh, yes, uh, you know, sausage fingers. Oh well. So for him, you know, two fingers of bourbon is like half a glass. <laughs> And so he would occasionally dip into the pappies. Well, yes, but he's uh, how old is he? He's he's one uh, of his eighties, I know. No, 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 he's no, not. He, I don't think quite. he's at eighty yet. Yeah, nevertheless, he is. He is he, senior deacon. He is senior status, and he is you know have been around a long time and is uh, worthy of all the admiration and uh, reputation now, that he has. So yeah. So okay. father got got back at him though. So this is a bourbon story I haven't told. I, I don't know. Oh, really? I, I, maybe I did when we did our bourbon episode. I don't know. But this is a great story. Doesn't sound familiar. So, Father, of course, he, he kept the... He will often keep the empty bottles. Because, you know, as we talked about uh, before, the bourbon bottles themselves sometimes can be really neat. And yeah. having an empty bottle at Pappy's is almost as good as having a full bottle at Pappy's. Well, it kind of shows you know what you're doing. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, Father <coughs> filled it up with Maker's. Which, a lot of people think Maker's is a very high-end bourbon. I do not think it is a high-end bourbon. Uh, I consider it a, a, you know, your basic regular Maker's is a mixed it, bourbon. It's acceptable. It's uh, A lot of people like it. Yeah. Uh, it's the best marketed bourbon yeah. by far. Absolutely nothing wrong Absolutely. with it. We, don't, we do not want to disparage this yes. in any way. Uh, now, if I'm going to have Maker's, I prefer the Maker's 46. Okay. Yeah. Which we've had many a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but apparently, Mike was drinking out of that and did not know it. Now, Mike says he did and just went along with it. But I don't know about that. Well, how about that? Well, that's a that's a good camouflage. Well, better, better than filling it with iced tea. That's true. Well, this is true. This is true. If yeah, you yeah, wouldn't have known that, then the, then really we have out, problems. Yeah, well, I, I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I have some uh, uh, brother-in-laws that I love dearly, but they like to drink my bourbon when they come over here. So I made certain that I bought a bottle of the twelve-dollar old granddad and put it into a crystal flask. And it's downstairs. It's meant to be the, if you want to come and drink me dry, drink that one first. <laughs> and I'll keep my nice bourbon upstairs here in my office so, in the closet where you can't find it. So you're, you're definitely being an alter Christus in that way, you know, uh, bringing out the the, uh, the the poor wine at first. And that's then, right. and then bringing out drunk the good freely, wine. bringing out the, the, the good the, wine. That's absolutely, that's right. Uh, hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do to protect your bourbon. That's right. To make sure that you have some. Yes, because hopefully after they had uh, uh, gotten sloshed on the, the inferior stuff, that they would have slowed down. The, <laughs> yeah, no. Good one, Centurion. Nice one, Centurion. It. Nice one. Liked it. Liked, liked it. it. No, 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 no. Not, not happening. Unfortunately, yes, that is not the case. Back to Patton. Patton. Uh, this is a, a stat that when you talk about, again, not only believing in himself, but believing in his, in his men under his command. Between activation on 1 August 1944 and 9 May 1945, VE Day, 3rd Army, his command, Mm -hmm. saw continuous combat for 281 days. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh Uh, uh, Talk about men up to their hips in it. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, they moved further and faster in those three days of Baston than any other uh, American unit had ever done in the history of the United States at that time. Uh, that record may still stand. I'm not sure. Uh, Desert, well, yeah, Desert Storm might have broken that because they moved pretty far, pretty fast in that. Right. But yeah, but nevertheless, it was an. an they enormous, didn't have to disengage to do that. Yeah. Right. It was an enormous, and they mentioned that in the movie. They they show a newsreel, uh, which is an actual newsreel from the time that that explains that. You, you kind of have to. It's such an enormous achievement. You have to bring it down to a 
bite-sized level to get your head around it. Yeah. It's just such an enormous... That, that command destroyed a significant German force. Correct. For the Battle of the Bulge. It was, the, it was And that was their last gasp. And, and had to pull back without reaching Antwerp. Right, because they almost pulled it off. Uh, von Rundstedt, who was in charge of it, was himself a bit of a tactical genius. And uh, what he attempted was... It was audacity. There's no doubt. Uh, as Frederick the Great would say, which Patton actually quoted in the movie and was a big fan of, uh, that's that's how you get there. You know, audacity. You know, ladas, ladas, toujours ladas. Well, audacity... It, it, audacity is one way of putting it. Another way of putting it is not just doing the unexpected, but I think it's doing what you know that you can do. Mm-hmm. And that you can... You, Without regard to what the other guy thinks you can do. Right. And it's kind of a long-winded way of explaining, but, you know, he's so... When you think so far ahead, and you are so well... You know, your your team is so well-trained, and so... And by well-trained, also has the ability to shift Mm -hmm. priorities and operations so quickly. Because, again, this is a team effort. From the top to the bottom, Mm -hmm. if... Everybody's not on the same page in the in their what they are able to do. Not necessarily what they're doing, but what they're able to do, that would have failed miserably. These are thousands he could have had his he could have had his army destroyed if mm-hmm. he, if they had disengaged poorly, because mm-hmm. then they could have had the Germans chasing them all the way to Bastogne, and then they would have been caught in a in a pincer movement mm-hmm. of okay. their own making. Yeah, because they're not up against some second stringer here. This was some seri- these this was a seriously dangerous enterprise that he undertook. He has to right. basically punch through an enormously well defended and supplied uh, German uh, phalanx, for lack of a better term, uh, in order to, in order to get where he's going to do because it's surrounded. You have to punch through it to to basically uh, relieve the blockade in many ways. Uh, and von Rundstedt was he, he was well supplied. You know his interior lines are very tight, right? So you know it's it's not it's not an easy thing to do. I, I know we keep coming coming back to that, and that's not all he did. Uh, his, it's probably the most dramatic. It thing. is. Well, his victory at El Guitar, which is shown early in the movie because it takes place in North Africa right after he lands, was an enormous uh, grounds well, sea change is the word I'm looking for because the American army had just gotten their asses kicked at Kasserine Pass. Uh, and um, General Friedenhall, who was in charge of that army before Patton came there, uh, is has gotten a lot of reputational grief over the years, and kind of rightly so, for his terrible mismanagement of things, because it was one of the greatest defeats the American army ever took place. And yet, by bringing in the right person, which of course is how the movie begins, saying, you know, you know well, we know, what we need here is somebody tough enough to bring this uh, outfit together, and we were talking about this in the show prep, and, and uh, Michael Strong from uh, Star Trek, uh, uh, what are little girls made of? Plays the uh, plays the colonel who is on his staff. He says Patton, and uh, uh, Bradley says possibly, and he goes, "God help us," which is still one of my favorite lines. But it explains everything so perfectly because Patton comes in and takes this absolutely defeated, demoralized, inefficient disaster of a command, turns it around. And whips the Germans at their own game just barely a month or so later, from Kasserine to El Guitar. It's amazing, and of course because of who he is, and how he read Rommel's book, which he says in the movie. And it was a very famous quote that was actually he actually said, "You know, Rommel, you magnificent bastard! I read your book." Uh, 
Uh, it was it was all very very true. Uh, you you cannot underestimate the value of that accomplishment. Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting in that not only is he this advocate for armored warfare and one of the key developers of it, but he understood, like you said, Robert, other people are doing it too. Other people are, are analyzing this. I need to know. I need to think the way they think. I need mm-hmm. to know what they know. And and so he studied. And knew uh, what to do. He knew Rommel, uh, which was easy to know, because uh, essentially Rommel was the tactical genius behind the entire Blitzkrieg. He's the one that, I mean, that was his philosophy that they followed. Yeah. Uh, so, and but of course, by this time, you know, this is 1942. Well, you know, if the fall of France was two years ago. We kind of know their tactics now. Yeah. Uh, and it's Patton's, ta- uh, Patton's tactics, too. He believed in speed. He, he, he already had it. Yeah, he yeah, believed in speed. He was a believer along with Rommel. They were both visionaries in that. Hit well, fast with everything you've got. That is a, in all warfare, hit as fast as you can, as hard as you can, is a universal uh, principle. Hmm. Now, the question is, do you remember it yeah. when you are actually executing? Yeah, based on the tools and the tactics that you have available to you. Right, yes. because, you know, for a long time, warfare became a battle of defense. Mm-hmm. And there is no speed on when you're on the defensive, you know, because oh, yeah. you're waiting for the other guy to show up. Well, yeah. And if you have a good enough fortress mm-hmm. that can work in a pre-industrialized warfare. Well, the trenches were essentially that in World War right. One, with with the proper uh, defenders behind it. Patton, of course, had, had known right. that, as did Rommel. Well, recognized... trenches worked in the Civil War to a certain degree. Yeah. I mean, it stopped Grant at Petersburg. Petersburg. Absolutely. Yep. yep. But Grant didn't have the tools that they did in World War One. That's correct. Nor did Lee. And nor did Lee. Uh, which makes a lot of so difference. So that's why trenches, you know, ultimately they start, they were okay because people were still, you know, World War One was that war that was, happened just as the technology changed right. drastically. Uh, a lot of times, a lot of these changes happened between the wars, uh, between World War One and World War Two. Lots of changes because they're taking what they learned in the prior war. Well, yeah, I mean. World War One. You know, the machine gun and the tank were first... They were just learning how to apply those. Mm-hmm. So by the time you get to the end of that war, you realize, oh my God, trenches are a really bad idea. <laughs> well, doctrine has changed. Right, Completely. doctrine has changed, yeah. yes. Uh, because the tools have changed. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and those who recognize that succeed. Right. Those it's, who don't... It's like the aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. You know... Which we talked about. Doctrine yeah. changed. Yep. Because the tool... Well, doctrine needed to change because the tools have changed. And having all of those battleships... Yeah, it looks really good, and you do a lot of really big stuff with it. But they're they're floating yeah. targets for mm-hmm. yeah. a good air force. Mm-hmm. So Patton, a worthy hero. Again, that same sort of again the way he appeals to me the same way Sherman appeals. Mm-hmm. That eccentric, that outside of the mold guy, but knew what he was doing, mm-hmm. and. He knew what his men could do because he had done it. Yeah, he's more than a master of his craft. He is that, which we admire. We would admire him if he, he was redefined on. the craft. Well, that's correct. It's even bigger than that. He's he, he. We would we would admire him if all he was was the master craftsman. He, this he goes beyond that yeah. uh, because he re- redefines the craft in of itself. And leadership is a universal that, unfortunately. Uh, there's plenty of examples of good leaders throughout history, throughout the world, but so often we find it hard to find the really good ones. Yeah. When you well, find the really good ones, you, they deserve to be I uh, think the, heralded as heroes. I think the reason that he is a great hero is 
unlike so many, even the ones we've brought up, but unlike so many uh, people that that are looked up to as heroes, you know, they have fundamental character flaws. Yeah. Uh, and ones that, you know, when we look, whether in the, through the eyes of their time or our time, those flaws are there. Yeah. Uh, and it's not to say that, that Patton doesn't have flaws, but generally the issues that we see with him are ones of momentary lapses of his better character, as opposed to, oh, well, he, this is just the way he really is. You know, the slapping the soldier, even though that was a humiliating thing for him to apologize for, I think in general that's out of character, and that's probably why it's so humiliating for him. He lost his temper. Yeah, yeah, and that's he didn't. He didn't that's usually not do he that. He was so moved by the sacrifices of the other men. Right. That's right. He uh, because nobody could ever accuse Patton of not having deep feelings because he did, and this is one of those times where that got he the took better. care of his men generally, and it got the better of him. He got and, he got everything he could well, get for him, he, and he he's gone get. on record many years later saying, you know, when it came to that slapping of the soldiers, he said, "I wish I'd have kissed well, the son of." Wish to kiss the son of a bitch. Well, it couldn't have been too many more years because well, I mean, it's it right. Yeah, a couple for of the years rest after of, he died, right? But yeah, for the rest of his time, it was very common. I think if you take that encounter with that soldier who was basically crying because, if I remember correctly, uh, yeah, it's shell shock. Yeah. It's shell shock. PTSD. But, yeah, what we call PTSD, which now. was completely. But he was crying because he couldn't handle. You know, he was just he was he was broken. If you had, if that had happened in any other context where he had not just gone through and seen all these mangled, broken bodies. He would have had compassion for that. He, probably, he, probably, I think it would have been a different thing. He, he would have not, not done what he even a slap. Yeah, it wouldn't have been you know. Oh, I feel so bad for you. Come here, let me give you a hug. That's no, not Patton. No, but it wouldn't have been the the anger, the losing his temper, leading to the slap. Right. Uh, because it was such a diametrically opposed situation. Yeah. yeah. And he's the moment was the right moment. Right. For it to or if he had encountered that man first. As opposed to seeing the other guys well, first. Yeah. He, he would have come down on him, but he would not have had He'd that He'd probably grab him and said, come with me. I want to show you I want to show you some people that really... Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe. You know, yeah. I, maybe he would have slapped him. I don't know. But it just doesn't seem like... Yeah. Given the depth of... Here's, uh, I mean, here's one little nugget that I thought was, was pretty interesting and I think ties to what you're saying, Robert. Uh, from what I've read, he's the first general officer to integrate... The rifle companies. Oh yes, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. So uh, here's a guy again. He believed in people. He he believed in what they could do, and wanted to use every tool in the belt, you know, and and thought one soldier was the equal of another as long as you did your job. Right. Well, one of his uh, one of his staff people was a staff sergeant named Meeks, who's African American, and he stayed with him. He was literally the guy that ordered that put together. The uh, the hunting trip that Patton went on the day of his fatal in, or you know his eventually fatal injury. injury yeah 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 you know it's interesting for um, I mean, I would guess just given his age the period he grew up in he used words we would not use today yes it's complicated and and they, they, but yes the devil I think is in the details meaning how did he treat the men in the field with him mm-hmm. and he would not if he had been a raging racist which today prima facie evidence of that would be that he might have used the n-word which maybe he did probably did given his age and the time of the the that we're talking about most of the people we're talking about would have and keep in mind that his again his his background is generally southern is generally southern 
It is, although he considered himself a Californian. By that time, yeah. Yeah. He had had married a Californian. The point is, though, that's not the way he treated the man. He would never have trusted that man, Meeks, to be his uh, confidant, essentially, because at that level... He was. He's Uh, a personal aide, he's confidant. You would not do that if you were a raging racist. Yeah, and uh, he, he Meek served with him pretty much for the entire war. And they even have some moments in the movies uh, yeah. because it's when he it's when he's the one that breaks the news to Patton that Bradley got the uh, command. Uh, uh, he said, "Did you hear it? We all heard it on the radio." And he kind of says, "You know, I can see you're kind of sad tonight, General." Uh, and then his and then his uh, chief of staff Codman comes in with a bottle of wine and says, "I'd like to share this with you tonight." He says, "Well." Maybe not. If you get some cognac, I'll help. You. <laughs> so, you know, that's why that's why I like him because the, I mean, never mind the fact that he was great at what he did. I mean, that's always part of it. But um, it just seems like the, the personal failings, are on the small scale, mm-hmm. not the big scale. Yeah, that's that, very well put. I that's, like that. Yeah, that's a rare thing. Yeah, yeah. When it, the, the big stuff he got right. Right, because I mean, we can look at some of the people we've talked about, guys who've had affairs. And I won't name names, but yeah. you know, just about all of them well, yeah, well, have done that. Well, Patton did too. Yeah. Well, at least he claimed one. Hey, we uh, did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yes, it was his wife's niece, actually. Oh, now that one, I, I'm, I, I'm not familiar. Yeah, with that I mean, one. there are there are some historians that think, well, it didn't really happen. He was just trying to brag because again, he's he's out of. Out of favor and all out that stuff. Out of favor, but and he's trying to like it's, uh, it's uh, per- build his masculinity back up. It's and- portrayed in the movie, and uh, and Jean Gordon was her name, uh, and she pretty much said after the fact, "Yeah, we did." Uh, and uh, there was there was some controversy about that, but it's pretty much historians have pretty much come down finally. Yes, he did. It was uh, okay. Well, that sort of tempers what I just yeah. said. Uh, it was not well known at the time, but apparently uh, that's a one-time thing. It was Whereas not, some of the guys we've talked about have been serial. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a one-time thing. It okay. went on for several years, uh, and in fact, the, the movie shows it pretty well. Uh, Again, not making excuses. Yeah, by yeah. by any means, but it, it kind of you know they Patton did love his wife. Uh, things were complicated with him. Uh, she was absolutely devoted to him. Eva Marie Saint played her in the uh, in the movie Last Days of Patton, uh, and of course she's a tremendous actress. There togetherness and their devotion to each other even despite his failings as a husband at times uh, it it plays through it's just one more complication here yeah. of, of past it sort of takes away some of the thunder for what Sorry, i was saying but, uh, but uh, it, it, i mean he, it's better he, to have it out there because i don't yeah. you know because def- i was not aware of that. he defies putting into a box god knows we keep trying and yet you know he's so good at so many things, and man, then he does this, and, and he does this. Yeah, and then that's uh, kind of seems like again something he's got in common with Sherman. Very hard to put in a box. Well, yeah, yeah, he and resists definition. Well, Sherman, you know what? So. Anybody who lives life who is fully human, and by fully human, I mean tries to tries to live out their life to the best of their ability. You know, fully with gusto, being the best that they can be. There's complications. Mm-hmm. Well, Sherman himself had a very successful marriage, and yet was also unfaithful. So that almost goes hat in hand with the uh, the military life, and, and, well, yeah, and there's some of that. And I don't want to use that as an excuse. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, especially when you're talking about a time when travel took months to go from one place to another. Yeah, from, you know, well, yeah. I mean, you, you don't. You don't and you see didn't your, have the, the yeah. wife with you. I, I'm not again not making excuses, 
I'm just saying I see how that happens. That, yeah, there, there are certain s- uh, systems and situations that are set up that don't help matters. Right. Uh, and sometimes bad things that shouldn't happen do. Yeah. yeah. Because, so, of situa- because it's easy. Here we are, Trevor Slattery again. It's complicated. It's complicated, but... There's a lot about patent. That's correct, again, and, and, the, I'm, and I'm glad we. I'm glad we gave and, us the opportunity to talk about that uh, about him, that personal failing of his, because it humanizes him some after the fact. We want to get it right. We want to make sure we. Right. We, we don't want to turn this into a, a glowing uh, portrayal. Yeah, I don't want it to be a virtual circle jerk with Patton in the middle. Uh, you said I wasn't going to say it, but well, you're exactly right. Well, again, Robert, cutting to the point. So anyway, we better wrap up, guys. Because uh, we're about in an hour. I see yeah. your fingers are over there on six. Yeah, so we're right there, and, and I know we don't want to go too far. We always we, we, co- always we have to covered keep the these. man well. Yeah, uh, I think that. Uh, and, uh, I, I will say this: uh, watch the movies. Uh, I know there are many people who don't like uh, the made-for-TV sequel because it's depressing. Yeah, it's basically him uh, being dumb, getting relieved, getting injured, and dying. Yeah, it's just kind of, but it is a fitting coda. To that, uh, I will say this: George C. Scott's voice is nothing like George S. Patton's. Scott, <laughs> Scott has has that deep, gravelly voice that's that, that that's booming, and that uh, uh, it fits the legend of the man. But Fat Patton himself had a falsetto voice, extremely high pitched. He was made fun of it a lot of times because it did not match his personality. Yeah. Uh, but you should definitely look up most any of books on Patton that you can find. Are really good, are really good. Martin Blumenson is one of his uh, primo uh, biographers. Uh, he's mm-hmm. written several. Uh, they're very accessible, very readable. I mean, uh, if you can find the the Farago book, Bradley's well, uh, Bradley's book himself, which yeah. is it's it's those I mean, are, it's it's a first hand account of everything. It's not necessarily all of Patton, but right. it's a first hand encounter with Patton, in, yeah. at least in part. Uh, and, and Farago took you know uses that as a basis. Yeah. So if you can find his book. I'm not even sure it's in print anymore. I suspect it is. I mean, my my printing was from the '70s, uh, from shortly after the movie. It's a thick paperback that I got. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tight read though. It'll it'll you'll blow through it very quickly. Uh, cool. Interesting. All right. Next What's time, next? Francis. Oh my goodness! Next time around, episode one. Hundred the century mark, the century. We've mark. done it, boys. We've done it. We've done it. Uh, we, we. It's going to be a retrospective. We've all been. We've been talking about this one for months, folks. About what? About what is it? What is Snakes and Otters about? How did we get here? What's so great about us? What's yeah, our we, favorite? Yeah, we did stuff? episode zero. Listen to. We listened to a little bit of that the other day. Yeah, and never. Honestly, I never cared for episode zero all that much because it was a little too scripted for my taste. Well, and it was. And, yeah, I, and I'm was, not. You know, we are not the, all about the script. No, that's that's the only only thing we've ever actually scripted. Yeah. Well, I mean, it even sounds scripted to well, me. Well, it was meant to be an advertisement. Yeah. Uh, which but we've point got is, hundred... though, I think we can much better define and delineate what it is to be Snakes and Otters. Oh, now. absolutely. Yeah, when when I wrote I wrote the script for that, and we had only made... Well, we all rewrote it. Exactly. Our, our we were all, all so, yeah. parts of it. Yeah. We were but it was made... your basis. We were, what, 15, 16 episodes in? We had just started going uh, a month, a week, weekly yeah, at that yeah. time. Yeah, so we, that, yeah. we just kind of said, well, this is what we think. It's not wrong. But, man, we are so much more than that now. A uh, hundred episodes in. Uh, Martin wanted me to remind you, too, that we've actually... If Robert you, did. Rob, yeah, that's right. Robert told me that. Uh, we've actually, if you look on our providers, you'll see more than... Uh, the numbers are a little higher than that because we did a few specials. 
here and there. Yeah. Episode Zero was one, and we did a few other uh, different specials. The COVID special. The and COVID special. and uh, We redid a couple. Uh, we broke a couple apart, I think. Yeah. Uh, yes, the Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. Uh, merged uh, back together and broke apart and merged some, back together uh, again. Yeah, I mean, so it's kind of close enough, but we're putting the, st- putting the stake in the ground and saying, no, this is our 100th this is, official this is, episode, yeah. and we're going to have a party. And it's going to be great, and we want you to join us. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.